Good morning. This is Ina Joseph, producer for today's WTVU News Brunch. We're on week three of Zoom broadcasting, or what we like to call Zoom casting. And while we haven't been coming to you from our typical studio space, we've been making the most of and having fun with this virtual adventure. Thanks for sticking with us, and we hope you enjoy today's show. No breakfast? No worry. It's News Brunch from Boston University. Welcome to this edition of WTBU News Brunch. I'm Emily Wilson in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And I'm Frank Hernandez in Puerto Rico. Topping WTBU News at this hour, New York City remains the epicenter of the corona pandemic, with confirmed cases of COVID-19 reaching more than 37,000. The city's famed Central Park is now home to a tent hospital. Refrigerated trucks are parked outside hospitals to hold the dead bodies. Officials say that nearly 100 people living in the city's main homeless shelter system have tested positive for the coronavirus. And that, in the city's prisons, 170 inmates and almost 140 staff members have tested positive for the virus. AJ Canella is a New York resident, and he says living in New York has been scary, due in part to the constant news. The news doesn't really help because it's really scary. Like, there's no really sight when things are going to start getting better. So it's kind of nerve wracking. Sunday, Governor Andrew Cuomo said he's often asked questions similar to AJ's of when will this be over? Cuomo said it would be when a faster and easier coronavirus test is developed for everyone. A home test or point of care test that can be brought to volume, I think that's probably when you see a real return to normalcy in the workforce. Some good news. Governor Cuomo also said more than 4,200 people in New York State have been discharged from hospitals, and that while the number of hospitality stations continues to grow, the rate at which it is growing is tapering off. The number of reported cases of coronavirus around the globe has passed 800,000 today. 95% of the active cases are considered mild, while 5% are serious or critical. After the United States, Italy, then Spain have the most reported cases, then China. Across Europe, countries are bringing in lockdowns and other extraordinary measures to try and control the spread. Germany has had an unusually low mortality rate, with only around 650 deaths of the 67,000 infected. Experts chalk this up to their high level of testing, large number of ICU beds and ventilators, and the quick government crackdown on social gatherings. In London, one of the world's largest convention centers was transformed within a week into the Nightingale Hospital which is set to open in the coming days. With over 4,000 beds, it will be almost four times the size of any other hospital in the UK. Alex Woodside, a construction worker at the new hospital, posted a video to Facebook. Sweden, meanwhile, is bucking the trend of the continent, choosing to keep most schools and businesses open and only restrict gatherings of over 50 people. However, not all are happy with Sweden's attempts to keep business as usual, with over 2,000 doctors, scientists, and professors last week signing a petition asking the government to introduce stricter containment methods. But if there are concerns about the developed world's ability to cope with the pandemic, they pale in comparison to the developing world. Data from the World Health Organization shows that a number of African countries, such as Zambia, have one doctor per 10,000 people. In Mali, there are only three ventilators per one million people. Doctors in refugee camps can't begin to think about hand-watching and social distancing. In a camp in Lesbos, Greece, in a camp in, Le- in, a camp in Lesbos, Greece, 20,000 people are crammed into a, thousand, into a space built for 3,000. 
where they are lucky if they can wash once a week. An outbreak here would be impossible to stop and would devastate the camp's population. In Syria, there are reports of patients dying from what seems like coronavirus, but there is no way of testing or treating them effectively. Executive Director of the World Health Organization's Emergency Program, Dr. Michael Ryan, says they are working to support developing countries in preparing for the virus. We supported the process of national action planning, sent PPE, uh, sent and dispatched lab tests. We worked with the Africa CDC to train lab technicians from all over Africa. Uh, and we're currently working on increasing all of the capacity. Noah Gutschalk, the Oxford America humanitarian policy lead, says they are calling on Western countries to do more to support the developing world during this pandemic. One of the things that Oxfam is doing is calling for uh, a $160 billion package in immediate debt calculation and aid to fund a global public health plan and emergency response. Um, if we don't do that, we're likely to see uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of deaths, as well as billions of people being pushed further into poverty. Um, in, in, in this world, no one is safe until we're all safe. And so it's not only the right thing to do, but it's in our best interest to make sure that we're controlling the spread of this virus and saving lives everywhere, not just in our own countries. Some of us might fantasize about getting on a boat and sailing away from this corona craziness, but it's not as easy as it might look. WTV reporter Sophie Eisenberg spoke to Carol Kemble, who had been sailing around the world before getting stuck in the port of Cartagena, Spain. Spain has been one of the hardest hit countries by the coronavirus outbreak, now with over 54,000 cases and over 5,000 dead. When Carol Kemble and her husband sold everything and took off on their wild ocean adventure, they weren't expecting the highlight of their day to become walking the dog. We take the dog off the boat and we walk up and down the, the dock front, which isn't very far at all. In fact, it's um, only 409 steps. I know because I've counted it many times. Cartagena went under lockdown before the rest of the country on March 13th. Campbell and her husband had been waiting there as they completed some repairs to their boat. Now they were suddenly stuck in their tiny living space with nowhere to go. But one of the advantages of having sailed around the world, you get plenty of practice wading out storms in cooped up spaces. You know, it's not like we're not used to living like this. Um, the difference is when we're contained in the boat like this 24-7, we're usually at sea or at anchor. The space doesn't feel as small as it would for anybody else because like everything, you, you, know, you get used to what you have um, and you appreciate it. But things have gotten more stressful in recent days. On Friday, the port had its first confirmed case of COVID-19. It, it changed the mood. It, it was almost palpable. You know, it just, without a doubt, everything shifted. The, the, you could feel the levels of anxiety and stress rise. Um, we didn't see as many people out. Campbell says that despite the difficulties, everybody in the port is doing their part to stay safe and contribute in whatever way they can. And even at a distance, the crisis has brought people together. The highlight of the day by far, and the, the, without a doubt, is at 8 p.m. every evening, um, all across Spain, people go out on their balconies or they open their doors and windows and begin to cheer and applaud and make noise to honor all the doctors and nurses and everyone working on the front lines. For WTBU, I'm Sophie Eisenberg in Los Angeles. And we'll be right back with how schools and colleges are adjusting to the new reality.
Now, there may be some good news. More than 50 volunteers have stepped up to help the Center for Regenerative Medicine at Boston University's medical campus to help develop and implement a unique coronavirus test that can return results in less than 24 hours. And the Food and Drug Administration has granted emergency use authorization for a five-minute test from Abbott Labs. The medical device company plans to supply 50,000 tests per day starting Wednesday. In Boston, the number of cases of corona has grown 12% since Sunday and is hitting hospital workers hard. 345 employees at four of Boston's largest hospitals have tested positive for the coronavirus, including Massachusetts General Hospital, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Tufts Medical Center, adding strain to the system as the city approaches the peak in its coronavirus curve. Governor Charlie Baker says that the state expects to see a surge in cases between April 7 and April 17. In anticipation of healthcare needs, some medical students will be granted temporary licenses to help manage the influx of patients. The Board of Registration of Medicine is giving medical school graduates who match a specific criteria an emergency 90-day limited license to practice medicine to help in the fight against COVID-19. Meanwhile, cases in group homes and prisons continue to escalate. Ten inmates at the Massachusetts Treatment Center in Bridgewater have tested positive for coronavirus in a little over a week, along with four staff members. At the Soldiers' Home in Holyoke, Holyoke, a state official reports that 11 veterans have died, with at least five of the deaths due to the coronavirus. The home superintendent, Bennett Walsh, has been placed on leave. And Cape Cod residents are petitioning for the shutdown of the Bourne and Sagamore bridges to keep people from overwhelming their small hospitals. Change.org petition is asking to limit bridge passage to year-round residents, medical personnel, and trucks delivering essential supplies. This petition echoes Governor Baker's request that people not travel to Massachusetts unless absolutely necessary. Comply with this request for the sake of protecting the most vulnerable among us all, our parents, grandparents, and those with underlying health conditions. Further, we're asking that folks considering travel to Massachusetts for whatever reason do not travel to our communities, especially if you have symptoms. Boston has seen 56 deaths and more than 5,700 cases of coronavirus since the outbreak. Boston University, like most colleges, will not be holding a graduation ceremony in May. In an email to the class of 2020 and their families, BU announced that the ceremony in May would be postponed until late August or early fall. BU isn't the only university in Massachusetts postponing their graduations. Northeastern University has also postponed their commencement until a later date, while Emerson College has opted for a virtual graduation. I talked to some grads about what this means for them. Graduation is perhaps one of the most exciting days in a student's academic career. Surrounded by classmates, friends, and family members, every student looks forward to it. But in the current coronavirus landscape we're living in, many colleges have opted for postponing or outright canceling their commencement ceremonies. Hector Millan is a senior at Penn State University. Penn State has decided to postpone their in-person ceremony that was due in May. And for Millan, the news was devastating. It's a real shame. It's a real, real shame. Uh, I've been looking forward to this day for all my four years at college. It was supposed to be a culmination of all my effort and hard work. Um, it was supposed to be a memorious ceremony for me and my friends and my family. While Mian thinks postponing the graduation was a smart move, he admits moving into the summer still has its downsides, in particular to some of his friends. A lot of them have already plans to move to another state or country because they've gotten job offers or 
um, grad school acceptance letters and they intend to move early to settle in to or start working. So they're they would miss those ceremonies. But students in universities like Penn State should count themselves lucky. Other universities around the U.S. still haven't let their soon-to-be graduates know when and if they'll still hold ceremonies for them. Maria Frias studies at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and her university still doesn't know how to proceed. The university hasn't decided um, whether the ceremony is going to be online or it's going to be postponed to a later date, like in the summer or in the fall. Um, We're going to get more information closer to May, apparently. But we are getting refunded, the money we paid for our caps and gowns. So I don't think that bodes well for an in-person ceremony. For Frias, the thing that hurts the most is not being able to properly say goodbye to Wesleyan. My university basically just kicked me out. I had to pack everything up through a service. I never really got to say goodbye to just campus and everyone on campus. And it's not just graduation ceremonies they're missing. A lot of students were told to move home without ever saying goodbye to their friends. But with the global pandemic happening at the moment, there are bigger issues at hand. And hopefully with social media, Zoom, and Skype, grads can maintain ties with their classmates. While the transition to online classes for college students is underway, many elementary school teachers have had to make even bigger adjustments to how they interact with their students. WTVU's Hannah Harn spoke to elementary educators about how distance learning has affected their classrooms. Their move to remote education has been interesting for elementary educators. Jill Schaefer, a fifth grade teacher at Hopkinson Elementary School in Los Alamitos, California, says she's able to meet for an hour each weekday morning with her students over Google Meets, where she checks in on their progress and homework. Fortunately, we're able to meet on Google Meets every weekday for one hour. And it's funny because when it ends, and I'll tell the kids, you know, we're wrapping up, if there's any more questions, there's always a handful of kids that say, I don't want it to end. Don't, who can stay? Don't, don't go yet. The Los Alamitos Unified School District is a bring-your-own-device district, but with many parents now working from home, the family computer may not be available for kids. Debbie Redmond is the Media Center Technology and Instructional Assistant at Los Alamitos Elementary School. Just at my site, we distributed over 250 electronic devices to families. Maybe some families don't have devices. Some people you know, can work from home, and maybe they, the parents had to work use their laptop. For many young students, Parental support will be crucial to the transition period. Neil McCluskey, the director for the Center of Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C., says younger students may have difficulty transitioning to a less structured environment. Kids do get sort of accustomed to having a set schedule, and if they don't have that, you know, they've lost sort of their moorings, and kids may find it a little harder to do their schoolwork um, when it's not in the structure that they're used to. And it may mean that you have to say, take half an hour or whatever, go play something. But then you need to come back and work on uh, whatever your assignment is. Still, McCluskey says the advantages as well as disadvantages of remote learning won't be fully evident until the outbreak is passed and young students are back in their classrooms. Most distance learning until now has been totally voluntary. But a lot of this is we're going to learn a lot about how online schooling works for, you know, quote unquote, the average kid, whether they want it or not. For WTBU in Seal Beach, California, I'm Hannah Harn. As people in the UK begin what may be several months of nationwide lockdown, they're figuring out how to translate social activities online, whether that be beers over Zoom or YouTube workouts in the living room. WTBU reporter Catherine Swindles talked to members of the gaming community to find out how social isolation is impacting them. Communities that play role-playing games such as Dungeons & Dragons will traditionally meet at gaming shops or homes. 
Now they're using online tools to play. Through video chat and instant messaging, they continue their quests, preserve their community, and look out for each other's mental health. One player, who goes by the alias Callum and runs a popular London-based gaming podcast, says that he had always thought of online gaming as being inferior to in-person. There are really a lot of people who are having their first go online, and I think it's going to change dramatically the, the understanding and experience of role players around the world. It's, it's quite impressive to see that happen, not only here in London, but across the world. Callum recently ran an event called D&D for Mental Health and says that he believes the tabletop gaming community is better equipped than many to deal with social isolation. Because mental health has been part of the conversation for quite a while now. So it, it kind of developed a culture of being open and discussing mental health issues. Now that we have the pandemic, what's happening is that we not only still keep communicating with one another daily, but even on an early basis. Rupert Grayling founded an organisation that runs tabletop gaming sessions for young people with learning difficulties and behavioural disorders. He says his organisation is having to quickly adapt their methods to online. But it can be tough, because a lot of the young people he works with rely on structure and routine in their daily lives. But, he says, in times like these, it is more important than ever that young people are given the opportunity to use their creativity. You know, we can't go running outside, but you can in the game. You, you can't even in real life go and slay a dragon, but you can in the game. And it's about giving them a little bit of escapism in their day-to-day -day actions specifically now. Grayling says that nothing can replace in-person interaction for supporting mental health and hopes that we are all back outside and slaying dragons again soon. For WTBU News, I'm Catherine Swindles in London. Social media has been essential during this global pandemic. Shared videos and recirculated posts keep us connected and entertained with our family and friends. But according to WTBU commentator Ina Joseph, we still need to be mindful of its job effects. That is what my phone has sounded like for the past two weeks. If you're a person with any sort of social media account, you're probably familiar with the surge of virtual activity that's coincided with the COVID-19 outbreak. And while everyone's talking about the role of social media in spreading false information, we can't forget about the dangers of social media that have existed all along. Just last month, Phil Reed from Swansea University told Psychology Today about current studies proving that, quote, higher amounts of screen time are associated with higher levels of anxiety and depression. Even though we're all looking for a sense of connection, social media use can still be toxic, especially since the creators of these apps are only featuring the most aspirational content. Earlier this month, The Intercept released documents detailing how moderators for TikTok were told to emit objectionable qualities such as, quote, abnormal body shapes, ugly facial looks, obvious beer belly, and too many wrinkles end quote, from its influential For You feed. And those were only some of the, quote, low-quality traits that moderators were told to suppress. We may all be social distancing, but media platforms deliberately flaunt the most glamorous versions of it. The fact that we're only seeing the prettiest, skinniest, richest, and most interesting on social media is even more detrimental than it would be normally, because all anyone is doing nowadays while we're stuck inside is mindlessly staring at Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok accounts. I've even found myself scrolling and sharing more than ever. When I realized the pressure I felt to do so, I decided to delete my Instagram for a couple days. Social media can be a beautiful tool to foster community and connection in these strange times, but it's important we stay mindful of how we're using these platforms. Posting pictures isn't the only way to pass the time. There are more constructive ways to use social media, from learning a new skill to having a FaceTime date with a friend, cook new recipes, and exercise with people virtually. 
finding healthy ways to cultivate the social and social media may be more important than we think if we're going to make the most of this time in isolation. For WTBU, I'm Ina Joseph, and that's my opinion. I remember when I first laid eyes on you My man Tom introduced us But I was too shy to say hi When I finally built up enough nerve to drop a line You made it clear you wasn't just another MySpace mystery And I didn't take it personal When you adore my request to be your friend I spilled my guts and hit send Waited two weeks for a response and got nothing Honestly, it only made me want you more Week four rolled around and I was this close to letting go But something wouldn't let me even know I hardly knew you it was plain to see 3.3 million people have filed for unemployment after workplaces across America shut down to ease the spread of the coronavirus. A CNBC report predicts the unemployment rate in the U.S. will skyrocket to 32%. Thousands of businesses have closed and small businesses are particularly at risk for closure, turning permanent. An abundance of small businesses thrive on day-to-day -day profit, and if federal aid can't suffice, we won't see these businesses reopen. Pam Pados, co-owner of Popover Bistro and Bakery in Simsbury, Connecticut, is experiencing the hardships coronavirus is causing on her business. We had to lay off our entire workforce. We're a small shop. We have about 13 employees. So the entire workforce was laid off and it's to two business owners uh, doing all the work at cooking and the other business owners up front uh, handling customers and bringing food out curbside. So it's been a gigantic impact on our business, and we still aren't sure of what the federal aid is going to be. We uh, applied for some of these small business association loans, um, and we're really not sure what applies to us yet, but we will definitely be needing some form of relief when this is over. Sierra Joseph, a licensed cosmetologist living in New Jersey, has been out of work for three weeks and has concerns about paying her rent. Even though everything that's going on with the COVID-19 situation, they're still expecting us to pay rent. So that's been our number one concern is just trying to figure out any possible ways to get around that because we have no source of income. I've applied to unemployment. Meanwhile, many folks who are still working are worried about their health. Yesterday, workers at Amazon and Instacart walked out the job saying they did not feel safe and employers weren't providing enough safety equipment. Marijuana shops across Massachusetts fear they could go out of business after Governor Charlie Baker deemed recreational purchases of marijuana non-essential. Some agree with this decision, arguing against smoking during a pandemic that attacks a respir respiratory system, while others see marijuana as a necessity, especially during trying times filled with anxiety and stress. Ironically, recreational marijuana shops are labeled non-essential in some states, but liquor stores remain open. California, Washington, and Oregon deem marijuana as essential, while medical assistant in San Francisco, Jackie Cornelius, is among those using marijuana. I deal with anxiety, and I know a lot of people that really depend on the medical marijuana and everything like that, and I'm really, I'm just so grateful that they decided to keep all the dispensaries open just to ease the pain. Vermont legalized recreational marijuana about a month ago took one step forward and two steps back by only allowing medical marijuana during this crisis. With the COVID-19 forcing people into their homes, the arts have taken a major hit. No Broadway shows these days, but WTBU special correspondent Kendall Tamer is here to tell us what folks are doing to keep the arts alive. Kendall? It's a rough time for creative works, but artists are doing their best to adapt. 
Many filmmakers have moved their films to streaming services. Museums have online tours, and many musicians like Miley Cyrus and Ben Gibbard have been live streaming. Sunday night, Elton John hosted a living room concert with dozens of musicians performing live from their couches. Phoenix Years Productions, an Orlando-based indie theater company, is also taking to the internet, hosting rehearsals through Skype, and streaming a staged reading of their show Ophelia on YouTube, with a special access link for people who bought a ticket. The theater's Megan Markham says that they're planning for the long term. We have a main stage show that's a full-length, like, original play happening in August, and I think that the casting process will probably look a lot different, especially we'll probably get a lot of video submissions and perhaps make our entire casting process be through video now because we were supposed to be starting to cast that in May, and I just don't know if that'll be feasible. But these online solutions won't work forever, and Markham is hoping that by the end of the summer, things are back to normal, especially since they had a show in the works for the now-canceled Orlando Fringe Festival. Shows like our show just can't happen online because we very often use the Fringe Festival to do immersive theater. Funnily enough, it was about a virus that infects the uh, world and creates a quarantine zone. Tariq Campbell, founder and director of the Boston-based dance troupe, The Concept Artists, says they have been doing their rehearsals via Zoom. Everyone joins, but we have majority of the group there. We'll lead a warm-up where someone will play music on there and everyone else will mute their microphones and uh, we'll just follow the person they see on the screen. But Campbell also hopes that soon they'll be able to return to traditional studios. Every performance that we were invited to had essentially been postponed or canceled or something there. So all those performances would have been in person. They also worry that the showcase that they organize every June might also be canceled due to corona. And doing that online would be impossible. In other arts-related news, a Vincent Van Gogh painting is still missing this morning after it was stolen Monday night in a smash-and-grab raid on Singer Loren Museum east of Amsterdam. On March 12th, the Dutch government banned large crowds to try and stop the spread of the COVID-19 virus, which led to the temporary closure of many museums. Jonathan Ribner, an art history professor at Boston University, says that art theft is not uncommon, but this situation is especially bad because someone saw this as an opportunity for theft. I mean, it's a, you know, kind of a classic example of opportunist, uh, you know, opportunistic criminals taking advantage of a situation uh, that, you know, where there's some kind of a perceived weakness or a gap in security, but this is especially awful because it's just so cynical and, you know, it's probably not in the situation with the outbreak of the virus. The stolen work, titled The Parsonage Garden at Noonan in spring 1884, is an oil painting of a person standing in a garden surrounded by trees with a church tower in the background. The value is not immediately known, but original Van Gogh paintings are typically worth millions. Ribner said that history is in favor of the piece being recovered, as with the theft of the Mona Lisa in the early 20th century and Monet's Impression Sunrise in the 1980s. But he still feels this theft could have negative repercussions for museums. It's just one more instance that's going to make people more nervous about, well, for one thing, lending things. I believe this is a work on the loan. And, you know, they were afraid that. You know, people will steal them. 
The painting stolen from the Gardner Museum heist in Boston, priceless Rembrandts, Vermeers, and many others have never been found. They were stolen 30 years ago this month. Hopefully this story has a happier ending. Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and gray Look out on a summer's day With eyes that know the darkness in my soul Shadows on the hills Sketch the trees and the daffodils At trying times like these, many people often visit churches, temples, and mosques for solace. 38% of Americans go to a religious service weekly. But unlike in other times of crisis, that is no longer an option, at least not in person. Gathering spaces for religious services are closed. So many people are replacing in-person practices with technology. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Churches and other religious institutions across America are going virtual. This live stream from Sunday is at St. Mark's Episcopal Cathedral in Seattle, Washington. This isn't the only church with live streaming services. Hundreds of others have joined too, such as Buddhist Churches of America and many community churches across smaller towns. People in America are searching for a sense of community among social distancing caused by the coronavirus. One pastor from Virginia's Columbia Baptist Church, Jim Bucom, even predicts online services will remain after the pandemic. This will not totally transform the church. The church will always be a place that people gather, where they convene and congregate. That said, probably going to change the way we do some parts of church. Gatherings worldwide are adapting. The Pope went into St. Peter's Square and prayed before an empty St. Peter's Square for the first time. In his weekly morning mass, he expressed gratitude for the helpfulness among people during this crisis. Tanta gente comincia a preoccuparsi in modo più generale per gli altri e pensano alle famiglie che non hanno il sufficiente per vivere, agli anziani soli, agli ammalati in ospedale che pregano e cercano di far arrivare qualche aiuto. Questo è un buon segnale e ringraziamo il Signore perché suscita nel cuore dei Suoi fedeli questi sentimenti. For the annual Indian Spring Festival of Holi in early March, the Prime Minister did not attend and advised people against going. That was just weeks ago, and now it's impossible to imagine that a festival of this caliber would take place as the pandemic expands. One Massachusetts resident who attends Catholic Church regularly, Kate Garbosik, is home in South Hadley, back from college in Boston, and has seen the effects Corona is having on her family's faith. My family's definitely been interrupted by this COVID-19 crisis, especially my dad, who's a devout Catholic. He has not been able to go to church for about two weeks now. Um, he hasn't been able to receive a communion, which is tough for him. Despite not being able to attend church, her family is still committed to practicing their religion. But even without formal religious services, millions of people are turning online for spiritual inspiration. <laughs> Beethoven's Ode to Joy, played virtually by 19 members of the Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra from their homes. Hey, Frank. Yeah? What are you doing with your free time now that you can't spend it all at WTV? Well, I've been playing just a whole lot of video games. Too many video games, my mom would say. <laughs> my favorite thing to do at home has been exercises like yoga. 
Oh, that's that's pretty cool. So all of us here at WTVU News Front were thinking it would be nice to share some of the best stuff we've come across that you can do from home. So welcome to our new segment, Indoor Activities. First up, the arts. Some of the best museums out there have created virtual galleries and exhibitions for you to visit from home. Boston's Museum of Fine Arts and Isabella Stork Gardner Museum both have free tours, and so has the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. And if you're still looking to celebrate on this last day of Women's History Month, check out Freedom Baird's Feminist Futurist Exhibition on the Boston Center for the Arts website. If music is more your thing, there's a lot going on right now. The Boston Symphony Orchestra and Berlin Philharmonic have both launched collections of great concerts for you to watch for free. And Club Passim in Harvard Square has started live streaming shows. Yeah, and they also created Keep Your Distance Fest, a virtual music festival accepting donations to help musicians who have been affected by the outbreak. Check out the Boston calendar for some other live concert series hosted by local artists. For film, check out Coolidge Corner Theater's new virtual screening room. Or how about a fun musical? SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical, is now available on Amazon Prime. Tune in, to, tune in to see how SpongeBob and his friends deal with the imminent threat of a volcano that may destroy their underwater town. This is all great, Frank, but I'm just looking to let loose and have a little fun. Well, in that case, I've got one last suggestion for you. Trivia Night! Aaron, our brewing company, is hosting a virtual trivia night every Tuesday at 8 p.m. You can order beer from them ahead of time and form your own team to play with. Sounds fun. Well, that's all for this week. We'll post links to all these resources and more on WTBU's Twitter. And stay tuned for next week's segment, when we'll tell you all about the best online classes you can take to get in shape, pick up a hobby, or hey, maybe learn something new. We're not the only ones making the most of this situation. WTBU correspondent Ina Joseph spoke to an Atlanta native about how he's not letting coronavirus get in the way of his celebrations. Despite everything, we're all still trying to make the most of this strange situation. Last week, a video went viral of Aaron Cotterell and his niece Chloe in Atlanta, Georgia, celebrating her eighth birthday via a social distancing block party. Chloe, stay back! You gotta stay here! <laughs> Aaron felt that it was important everyone know that during times like these, it's still important to celebrate and spread love. To them that despite what's going on, that is ways to always show love and this was a perfect example of it. And we are celebrating two birthdays from our crack WTVU News Brunch crew. Sophie Eisenberg celebrated yesterday and my co-host Emily is having a happy day today. Right, Emily? Nothing like getting up at 8 in the morning on your birthday and cranking out Corona stories all morning. Well, that'll do it for this edition of WTBU News Brunch. I'm Emily Wilson in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And I'm Frank Hernandez in Puerto Rico. We leave you now with an amazing production from our friends at the Boston Conservatory and Berklee College of Music in Boston, performing the 1965 song, What the World Needs Now is Love. Student Shelby Rassler is a senior majoring in composition and came up with the idea on her plane journey home to Florida. Joined by a virtual orchestra of 74 of her peers, she produced, arranged, and edited the video herself, and now has 1.3 million views on YouTube. Enjoy!
Just too little love.